Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are, we are going to be covering 1 Corinthians 15, perhaps Paul's most important chapter in all of his work. And what this chapter does for us is not only gives us a quick, concise, easy to read, easy to understand description of the gospel. This is the gospel that he says in the text, the gospel to salvation by which you're saved. You're saved by this gospel. And then he details the critical elements of the gospel. This is what he's preaching. This is what he's going around getting persecuted over his gospel. It not only talks about what the gospel is, the key elements of the gospel, but then it talks about what the gospel does for the believer, what it does for the Christian. And from here, we start seeing Paul's worldview, how Paul sees metaphysics, we might say. We might call it metaphysics. It might not be metaphysics once we get through with this, but how he views the interaction between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And uh, here's going to be a spoiler alert. Um, is he going to be a Neoplatonist philosopher who thinks that the physical and the spiritual are separate realms which can't interact and one needs to ascend from the material realm to the physical non-material realm and uh, remove all change in order to reascend to the one. Remember, Augustine was teaching rural peasants in the third century to ascend to the one. This was Neoplatonic thought. And did Paul buy into that? Or was Paul a Jewish scholar? Was Paul a Jewish preacher, a, a rabbi, if you will? Did he teach the restoration of the material world? God coming to earth and reigning on earth, on the material world, establishing justice, establishing righteousness, punishing the wicked and blessing the righteous, raising the dead, those who have died for Christ, to be citizens of this earthly kingdom. Which was Paul? Was Paul a Jewish rabbi or was Paul a Neoplatonist? And this chapter gives us a lot of critical insights into his theology. So those are our two options. Modern Christians tend to take the Neoplatonist approach. They think that, oh, we live a good life on earth, and then we're good Christians, and then we ascend to heaven, and we live forever in the clouds, and, and we live forever in this divine realm. Uh, but that wasn't Jew Jewish theology. Remember back to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, he says, Our Father who art in heaven, God is in heaven. And you see this constant imagery in the Bible. God is on his throne. And in Revelation, in Hebrews, that Jesus reigns with God at his right-hand side. The two are in the same uh, spiritual, metaphysical realm and interact with each other. It's not the Neoplatonic thought where, where God the Father is this changeless, uh, eternal orb outside of space and time uh, without predicates and unchanging. It wasn't this idea. There was a constant interaction. When Jesus is praying, he says, not my will, but yours be done. There's actual interaction going on in those scenes. And Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. God's in heaven, has his kingdom in heaven, is ruling in heaven. And the Jewish hope was that God would bring this heaven onto earth. Establish righteousness. Establish justice. Uh, bless, bless the righteous. Bless those who have died in Christ. And then punish the wicked. Restore justice on earth. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Bring your will, bring your justice, bring your rulership. The world is corrupted. The world is uh, dying. The world is decay. The world is death. There is hurt. There's pain. There's suffering. Bring your kingdom. Wipe away every tear. Wipe away all pain and suffering. Bring your justice, Lord. Bring your kingdom to earth. 
and restore this earth to the original glory that you set out to build in creation. So Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom's currently in heaven. God's will is currently being done in heaven. It's not this Calvinistic idea where everything that happens on earth is God's will. No, God's will is being subverted on earth. God's will it is not reigning supreme on earth. The world is fallen. And the Christian hope is that God will restore this earth. God will restore justice. I have pulled up here a really helpful article, and it's called The Kingdom of God and Paul's Gospel by Brian Victors. And it's out of the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology. And it's a really good overview of how Paul uses the kingdom of God. He uses the terms, the themes, the motifs throughout his writings. And by kingdom of God, he meant the same thing that Jesus did. So some people might claim that Paul had this heavenly focus, this escapism focus, that the believers, the body of Christ, will be going to heaven. But in reality, he had the same focus that Jesus had on the kingdom of God, on a restored earth. The Jewish eschatological hope of a restored earth, a restored kingdom where man would live with God indefinitely into the future. This was Paul's theology. And we're going to get some of that in 1 Corinthians 15, in which the gospel of the kingdom is mentioned. So verse 1, Moreover, I declare to you the gospel. So he's about to tell us what the gospel is. This is what he preaches, which they received, and which they stand. Verse 1. Verse 2, By which you are saved. They are saved by this gospel. So let's pay close attention to the critical components of the gospel. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That's the first element going on here. He was buried, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen. you got those four elements. Christ died for our sins, and I think that's not a throwaway line. Christ died for our sins. Christ's death had something to do with our sins, and that's a critical part to the gospel. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, is fighting these individuals who think that people can't rise from the dead. And so he's going to explain this feature. Out of all the features in this gospel, he's going to pick on this one and go into detail what this means. This is a physical resurrection. Paul is very critical to point out that there is a resurrection. It is a bodily resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. He had people touching his hands and everything. And we likewise are going to follow suit we also will get these spiritual bodies so it's not like the sadducees who said there is no resurrection of the dead it's not like the platonists who laughed and scoffed remember paul talks about how the gentiles scoff at the resurrection that oh yeah okay our material bodies are going to be resurrected the gentiles think that's foolishness but he points out and his argument is it's not foolishness we will be raised with spiritual bodies this is a real resurrection it's a material resurrection the material and the spiritual are, are not different. They're not dichotomous. There are different types of bodies, yes, and some bodies are subject to decay and some aren't. But they still inhabit the same realm, and they will re-inhabit this earth in the resurrection. That's what he makes the case about. And Jesus was seen, and this is important. There are eyewitnesses saying that this is a real event. Eyewitnesses alive at the time of Paul, and he is referencing them as corroborating evidence of the resurrection. Paul concludes this section by writing this, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. This is about his road to Damascus uh, experience. And this is what gave him his apostolic authority. 
he, he relies on this, especially in Galatians. He says, uh, I am a disciple of Jesus. I received my information directly from Jesus. These things happened to me. I was chosen. Listen to what I'm saying. I have authority. And he wanted to stand on his own authority, not under the authority of the 12. So this was a critical in his ministry for convincing people that he had the authority to say what he was saying. It's emphasized here as well. He writes this, For I am the least of all the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. God chose him. God appeared to him. God converted him. And his grace towards me was not in vain. He says, I, I responded. I, I decided to give up my life and then follow Jesus, to follow God, become a minister. And he writes this, I labored more abundantly than they all. So it wasn't in vain. God didn't do this without any results. God did this, and, and Paul's trying to give back with all his might and with all his being. Remember when Paul was on trial, and he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul's not a Calvinist. Paul doesn't believe in irresistible grace and predestination, like Calvinist predestination. Not biblical predestination. Remember, they hijack words. That's not what's going on here. Paul says, I could have resisted this. Uh, I, I worked. I worked to, to make this happen. He says this, but, but not I, but the grace of God, which, with, which was with me. So what's he saying there? He had the spiritual regeneration that he couldn't resist. Or he's saying, God was with me. God answered my prayers. God gave me supernatural healings. God gave me resistance to snake bites. God saved me from shipwrecks. God opened prison doors for me. God was with me. God was enabling me. And God worked wonders through me to all these people. This is God's doing. I'm giving God the glory. So which one is it? That or or is it the, the Calvinist idea? This is irresistible grace. And, uh, you know, I told you the gospel, but uh, all that doesn't matter. Throw that out the window. You can't respond to gospels. And uh, it has to be a supernatural imbuing in order to accept the gospel. What's going on there? Calvinist or free will? Is Paul emphasizing God's mighty works, or is Paul emphasizing fatalistic determinism? Scrolling down to verse 12, he starts talking about the resurrection of dead. So there seems to be a contingent of Christians, believing Christians who believe in Jesus, who deny the resurrection, probably like a Sadducee sect of Christians. And he says this, and his arguments are based on them being Christians. His arguments don't work if he's just addressing people who don't care at all about Christ and Christ crucified. He says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. He's saying, hey guys, you guys already believe Christ rose from the dead, and we're also going to raise from the dead. He's not like a special person that this is the only person that this is going to happen to. He is the pattern that we are going to follow. And this whole section leads up to that, leads into that. And he starts talking about typology. Adam was a type and Jesus was a type. As in Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. Adam set the pattern for death. Jesus sets the pattern for resurrection. And the whole argument is, we will be raised in the same manner Jesus was raised. He writes this, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. He's saying Christianity is falsifiable. If Jesus didn't rise, uh, we might as well not be Christians. It doesn't matter. And uh, it should be something else because Christianity is false if Jesus, not, Jesus does not rise. And that's good. 
Uh, religions and points and positions should be falsifiable. Something that's not falsifiable, you have no basis to believe it because it just molds and fits whatever pattern you want. So how, how do you know if it's true or not if it's something's not falsifiable? Christianity is a falsifiable religion. Prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Christianity is false. Everyone should abandon Christianity. Verse 17 is interesting. It says, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Remember back when he says Christ died for your sins. So in some way, some sort of maybe it's an atonement or maybe it's figurative. There's different readings of this and you could probably pick your best one because uh, these, these, these references are kind of vague. Make what you will. But maybe Christ died as an atonement for our sins, just as the, the blood sacrifices in Israel atone for sins. And if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we're still in our sins because he wasn't the real sacrifice. He wasn't the sacrifice that would undo all our sins. Maybe something like that's going on there. Or maybe he's saying if Christ is not risen, then this is a fake story. Everything we're telling you is inaccurate. And it's just like you killed some random dude and that doesn't do anything for our sins, right? Some, some random dude dies, that doesn't forgive our sins. And we're, we're still as lost as ever. If Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He says there's no hope for these guys. These guys are just dead and they're gone. There's no hope. I like this phrase. He, he's a very, Paul's very much a realist. He, he understands the logical implications of these different positions. He says, if in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And what he's saying here is that, you know, if, if the dead don't rise, if we just die and that's that and nothing comes after that, then what are we doing? I mean, does, does Christ's benefit us here? Well, we get a lot of persecution. It's not very fun being Christians. Everyone hates you. And uh, then we're dead and gone. What benefit was that? What benefit was that? Paul goes on and says later in this chapter, he says, you know, if, if, just, if that's that, if you die and everything's done, and uh, why not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Do what you want, because why does it matter? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then this life is futile. Do what you want. It doesn't matter. I've been listening to some Sam Harris stuff, and that, that man's insufferable. He's, he's an atheist that thinks you could have morality without God. Paul says, why? Why, why does it matter? If, if we were dead and gone and nothing comes after that, do what you want. It doesn't matter. There's no morality. You could pretend there's morality. No, there's not. You're gone. It doesn't matter. Verse 20, but now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is a pattern. Yeah, there were, was people like uh, Lazarus before Christ who rose from the dead, but he didn't set the pattern. He wasn't Jesus. And Paul's going to talk about the manner in which Christ is risen. He's given a different type of body. He's given a spiritual body, which we will emulate. We will be raised in the same manner that Christ was. It wasn't this Lazarus resurrection. Yes, that's a taste of things to come. A lot of the miracles that Jesus did on earth were tastes of the coming kingdom of God. Abolishment of death, abolishment of pain, abolishment of suffering and disease. Those are all tastes, nuggets of this kingdom to come. But Christ, when he died, he set this new pattern, this resurrection pattern that all Christians will be following. So this first fruits language is that he is the pattern. He is the one that we're going to emulate. He is, he is the mold, we'll say. For since by man 
came death, by man also came resurrection of the dead. There's one man in Adam, and everyone dies in Adam. Everyone dies like Adam. Adam, oh, in verse 22, it says that, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. This is talking about pattern setting. Some people will try to make this spiritual, like, oh, original sin, everyone got sin through Adam. But not everyone actually did die in the Bible. You got Elijah, and we got Enoch. And I know there's some discussion about whether Elijah actually died or was he transported somewhere else. The book of Kings really is fairly clear that he was brought alive to heaven and that's that and that was his end. There's there's a big there's a big exit scene and then they search the physical world for him after he goes and the point is he's gone to heaven and not coming back. So Elijah's gone to heaven and uh, Enoch went to heaven. The book of Hebrews takes the Enoch incident and says it explicitly that Enoch did not taste death. Enoch did not die. So no, not, not everyone dies. And not everyone, uh, people will say, oh, you get this sin and the sin kills you or something. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about typesetting. If you want that theology, you have to make that argument from a different location and not 1 Corinthians 15. This is about typesetting. This is about, this is about patterns. As Adam died, people die. As Christ was made alive, those who are Christ, not everyone, it says all shall be made alive. Yeah, but but contextually what it's referring to are those in Christ are going to be made alive. And contextually that all die in Adam, contextually it just means it's a pattern. General rule of thumb, everyone dies in Adam like Adam. He set the pattern. He was the first one to do this. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his coming. And here's really where we get a taste of Paul's kingdom theology, what, what he's talking about. That he, he is talking about the same thing that Jesus is talking about. He says this, Then comes the end when he, this is Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So this is this idea, this your kingdom come and your will be done, that God brings his kingdom to earth and he puts his enemies under his feet. He restores rule, his rule, divine rule on earth, subjugates the world and creates it into his original intentions with creation. A perfect realm where people live in harmony with, without death, without suffering. And it says that actually in verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. View Paul's theology as God versus death, God fighting the forces of death, the forces of chaos, the forces of corruption, and he does that through use of Jesus' death and resurrection. Another thing I like about this passage is it really shows Paul's ideas of how Jesus and God interact throughout the Bible. Remember, Jesus in the garden prays to God. There's interaction between the two. Jesus is doing stuff on behest of God the Father. Jesus is the agent. God is the ruler, the sovereign. And you get that feel throughout the New Testament, all these references to Jesus being at God's right hand. Let's flip to Hebrews real quick and take a look at that. Hebrews 1.8. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heavens. Jesus is at the right hand of God. There's interaction between the two. The, the two deal with each other in the same realm. It's not this platonic hypostasis where God is outside of space and time and can't interact with anything because he's pure simplicity. That's not how it works in the Bible. That's, that's, that's not Christian thought. 
Hebrews 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Revelation, you get this scene of interaction as well, where Jesus walks up to God and takes the scroll out of his hand while God's sitting on the throne. And then later in the book, they reign together from the new Jerusalem on the restored earth. So whatever your theology on the Trinity or if you're a Unitarian or whatever, you have to deal with this and make sure that it it actually jives with your idea of Godhead, of the relationship between Jesus and God. And the traditional hypostatic union, it really conflicts with that because in that hypostatic union, Jesus is a puppet creature, a marionette, divinely controlled by this eternal trinity, which is unity, and pure simplicity, which can't be material, can't be physical. They, it can't reign on earth. The Jewish hope, the Jewish hope is negated by this idea of a God outside of space and time, outside of change, outside of predicate. That's not the that's not the Jewish God. That's not Yahweh in the Bible. That's not who Paul believed in or Jesus believed in. They want a restored earth with God as the ruler, ruling from the new Jerusalem. Verse 27 is Paul's lesson in reading comprehension. I, all doesn't always mean all. Remember, we just covered a couple instances where all doesn't mean all. Not everyone has died. It says all has died in Adam. Well, no, not everyone, really. And uh, all's going to be made alive in Jesus. Well, not really. Both of them are limited. Paul writes this, For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident, so he's saying it's clear, this is obvious, that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So Jesus is subservient to God. You always have this subservient relationship every time we talk about Jesus and God the Father. Some, something's going on there. So when people say that the hierarchy in the Trinity is not like real or not biblical, what they're trying to do is they're trying to use Platonistic metaphysics to try to make them all equal because God can't have composition. God can't have differences. It creates parts. It destroys simplicity. And that's not a biblical concept. Jesus is always subservient to God the Father throughout the Bible. But Paul teaches us about hyperbole and generalizations and rules of thumbs. All doesn't always mean all. Verse 29 is interesting. It talks about baptizing for the dead. And there's not enough context to know what's going on here. Apparently there was some sort of practice in Corinth in which people were baptizing for dead Christians who didn't have a chance to get baptized or they're getting baptized for dead friends and family members who never heard the gospel or uh, we don't know what's going on here so is this the thing that the mormons do like the mormons they'll get like baptized for genghis khan and and all sorts of weird figures throughout history and they'll get baptized like seven times or i don't i don't know weird cultist practices that they perform is that what's going on here probably not there's not enough context to tell us what exactly is happening here? Is it a purification baptism? Is it identification with a cult? And when I say cult, I'm using the academic term. Identification with, with a movement. Identification with a religion. A lot of Baptists during that time would baptize people, and that baptism would symbolize to everyone else in the community your identification with that movement. So not enough context in verse 29 to make too much of it. Uh, you can, that's fine. 
But moving on, we get that phrase in verse 32 that we talked about a little bit earlier. He says this, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no afterlife, if there's no resurrection, what's the point? Do what we want, because then we're dead. doesn't matter. There's no consequences. We could, there, life, Live life without consequences. You only live once. This is uh, Paul doing the YOLO thing, the Y-O-L-O meme. You only live once. Do what you want. You only got one life. But of course he doesn't believe that. He believes there is a resurrection of the dead. And uh, because of that, he says, wake to righteousness, do not sin. Don't be a sinner. So he's still addressing critics in verse 35. There's people who say that the dead don't rise. And one of their objections is, what kind of bodies did these guys get when they raised from the dead? <laughs> Here's how Paul responds. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like a Facebook forum where the initial response is just, just maybe a little bit out of proportion. He says this, foolish one. He's like, you idiot, you idiot. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that the body that shall be, but mere grain. So you throw down grain, you plant grain, and out pops something that's not grain. It's a different thing. It's a stock. It's it's food that grows from these little grains. Something different grows from what you plant. And the illustration is that when we rise from the dead, we're not going to be the same bodies that we were planted down into the ground when, when we died. We're going to get new bodies, different bodies, in the same way that a seed gets a different body when you plant it. He says this, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh for men, another kind for animals, another for fish, another for birds. Well, think about that. In the Platonic system, there is only one type of flesh. There's the material world and there's the spiritual world. And all the material world is all the same changeable junk. And you're, you need to ascend to the spiritual, less changeable world. That's their idea. But Paul says, oh, there's different types of bodies. There's different types of flesh. Okay. He says there are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's different types. There's different categories of different bodies. There's one glory for the sun, another for the moon, another glory for the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. All stars differ from each other in some sort of variation. He may or may not be referencing an idea that the stars were heavenly entities, which was perhaps popular around this time, but uh, we don't get any indication in this passage, at least, about that. Verse 42, there's also resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption and raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor and raised in glory, sown in weakness and raised in power. It is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. A spiritual body? But I thought, I thought according to the Platonists, you couldn't have spiritual bodies. Spirits don't have location. They say God is spirit, so God couldn't be hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1. No, a spirit doesn't have location. Spirits outside of space, time, a length, width, uh, all these dimensions, God's outside of all of that because he's spirit. That's their argument. But Paul's saying there is a spiritual body because in Jewish theology, the spirit wasn't what we think in modern Christianity when we talk about the spirit. It's, there's not a spirit realm that's over and above this current realm, just like layered on top and outside of the material world. 
Instead, there was interaction with the two. Remember, when Paul talked about individuals being brought to heaven, he didn't know whether they're brought in the spirit or in the body because the bodies could go. There's people brought to heaven. Elijah was brought to heaven in the body. Isaiah was brought to heaven. There are different people brought to heaven bodily. The spiritual and physical could interact. They're, they're in the same, quote-unquote, like uh, hypostasis, in the same realm of existence. They're not different layers that can't overlap and interact. And the funny thing is that these spiritual bodies, these spiritual bodies we're going to inherit the physical world with. We're going to eat and drink, as uh, Jesus says, that there's going to be banquets. There's going to be people bringing tribute to the New Jerusalem in older apocalyptic texts. In Revelation, there'll be people walking in and out of the kingdom. There's going to be bodies. There's going to be activity. There's going to be movement, and there's going to be change. And it's not going to be this spiritual realm of ghosts or a spiritual realm of less changing or or even heaven. We're not going to be playing harps in heaven. It's inheriting of the kingdom and this resurrection of our bodies to re-inhabit uh, uh, this world, to inhabit the new kingdom of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's his idea here. We are given spiritual bodies and the same spiritual bodies that Christ has. And he makes that point very explicitly that Christ is the type and we follow that type. And we will be given not the natural body of dirt, not the natural body of Adam, but the spiritual body of Christ. He says that in verse 45, And so it is written, The first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He's comparing Adam as a type to Jesus as a type. Adam sets a precedent. Jesus sets a precedent. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of the dust, so also are those who are made of the dust. As is the heavenly man, so are also those who are heavenly. Isn't that an interesting concept? As Jesus was raised, the spiritual body that he was granted, this eternal body that in Paul's theology, this eternal body doesn't die. It doesn't have this corruption. It doesn't fall apart. It's not made of earth to die and be corrupted like that. It's made of uh, a spiritual substance, a substance that Jesus had when he rose from the dead. And remember, Jesus had people touching him and, and feeling the holes in his hand. Jesus had a spiritual body that wasn't any more subject to corruption. Verse 49, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. We're going to be having the same types of bodies that the angels have, the heavenly man, divine bodies. Verse 50, we get more kingdom language. He says this, Now, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And a lot of people would like to misread this because they don't understand Paul's idea of the spiritual. Remember, the spiritual has bodies. The spiritual can interact on earth. The spiritual is not the opposite of the material world. There's overlap and interaction. There's, there's spiritual bodies who who do stuff, and angels who, who kill people in the Bible, and angels who eat in the Bible. The spiritual can very much interact with the material world in his theology. But normal flesh and blood, the atom bodies that corrupt, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And people were objecting to Paul, and they were saying, this resurrection, yeah, sure, the people who have died, those guys will get new bodies, but what happens to the people who do 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 believe in God but are still alive 
at that time. What happens there? Do they just wait until they die? Paul, your, your theology is silly. So this, these, this was objections to Paul's resurrection theology. They're trying to pull coals and anything that they could find to, to discredit the resurrection. And he says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. This mystery language is pretty common in the ancient world. Now, the Greek mystery cults were famous for holding these deep philosophical or deep religious truths that they would reveal only to the initiates. So anytime that Paul talks about a mystery, I feel like he's subverting modern culture. He's saying, here's a deep spiritual truth that I'm revealing to you. This, this is like a mystery cult. I am giving you this divine special knowledge. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He says, at that last trumpet, at the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back, when God comes down to earth, there's going to be this instant change of the people who are still alive. The dead will be raised right away, and we will all be changed at the same time. It's an instant thing where our, our physical bodies are converted to spiritual bodies in an instant. And it's this spiritual body, it, not, not the fleshly body. The, the fleshly body brought death. He's not talking about like sin, original sin, sin brings death or anything like that. He's, he's really talking about the substance, what our bodies are made of. Because we're made out of the dirt, and dirt has a tendency to corrupt and fall apart, that's the reason people die. At least in this passage is what the point he's making. But we're putting on eternal bodies. We're putting on bodies that it will make us live forever. He doesn't talk about how this interacts with something like the tree of life in Genesis, in which if Adam had access to the tree of life, Adam theoretically could have lived forever. But I don't think that's his point here, to talk about, yeah, there's certain circumstances where the Adam body could live forever, if the Adam body's eating from the tree of life, or maybe the tree of life converts your physical body, your dirt body, to a spiritual body. Uh, he doesn't talk about anything like that. I think that's uh, beyond the point, especially in light of his audience. He's not trying to be overly technical. He's trying to give general rules of thumbs. He's saying these people set precedents. These people set patterns that are going to be followed. And this is the general workings of reality up to this time. And uh, these are the changes that are coming. So he's not, he's not being super overly technical, but he does have to answer objections. And he fights those objections to his resurrection theology. And remember, as we talked about before, in Paul's theology, there's this cosmic battle between God and the forces of death. God is trying to overcome death. God is trying to establish this uh, uncorruptible kingdom, this uncorruptible rule. He says this, So when the corruptible has put on the incorruption, when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying as written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. What's probably going on here, the sting of death is sin. Sin brought death. Without uh, sin, death would never have been brought on mankind. And the strength of sin is the law. That God multiplied laws. And the more laws that were multiplied, the more people realized their culpability and more they violated those laws. Remember in the Bible, there's this ongoing theme that the more you know, the more you know right from wrong, the more culpable you are in sinning. It's really a justice-based system that uh, people who should know better will be judged harsher. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus Christ giving us victory over here? I think there's three things that he's referencing. Death, we get victory over death. We, we die no more. Sin, why do we get victory over sin? Because uh, the law is overthrown through Jesus. So uh, we get victory over death, sin, and the law through Jesus that line there echoes a lot of what we see in Romans, which is a different podcast. That is basically 1 Corinthians 15, and you can probably see why that is such a critical book and the importance of that book. Probably Paul's most important chapter that he wrote, just because he explains not only the gospel, but what that gospel does, and it, practically how it affects us as Christians, how it affects us during the second coming, how it affects us into eternity, this is the chapter for that. Thank you for listening.